Why don't we stand, take 30 seconds, greet someone around you, say, good morning. Okay, we are moving through the book of Ephesians, and I want to give you a little, really quick review or introduction if you're early into the series and have joined us uh, late, uh, of where we are. So the book of Ephesians is a letter to an early church about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The church is comprised of Christians who have come to Christianity through uh, the Jewish faith, Judaism, and through uh, pagan roots or non-Jewish, Gentile. So it's a real mix of people with very different spiritual backgrounds learning what it means to um, receive their identity in Christ, what that new status means, how to live together. Ephesians 1 to 3, so the first half of the book, spends all the time talking about what God has done in Christ for them and celebrating that. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are sort of Paul's way of saying, how now should we live? Given what God has done, given his grace in our lives, how does this play out? And we're moving into a, um, a context where in Ephesians 5:15 to chapter 6, 9, he moves right into spirit-filled relationships. He says, Christianity changes. When you encounter God's love through Jesus, it changes all of your relationships, especially the relationships of your household which in that context meant more than just the home that you lived in. It often meant extended family or even extended family and place of employment. So their core relationships get transformed. And there's a challenge to Christians, whether they were Jewish believers who came to Jesus or Gentile, to say there's a different way to live now. And to be filled by God's spirit is gonna look different as it plays out in the world. And then in verses 21 to 33 of chapter five, Paul specifically zones in on marriage and says, this is the instructions that I have for the early church, for Christians, um, in terms of what the the pattern of what a spirit-filled marriage is going to look like. Now, I moved through what I'll I'll remind you of, but I moved through these two views and two visions of Christian marriage pretty quickly a few weeks ago And in so doing, I'm not sure because of some of the feedback I got uh, that I was as clear or as precise as I could have been or I I maybe kept things at too high a level, especially with regard to how you could read a passage like Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, and then one group of Christians arrives at a very different understanding and application as another. So what I want to do today is teach through the passage quickly from the complementarian view and how they read and understand it and apply it 
and then do the same thing but through the egalitarian lens so that you can not just understand what the two views represent, but you can see their linkage, maybe not to all the scriptures on marriage or all the attendant scriptural themes, but at least to Ephesians 5. And then I want to give you an illustration that I think will help you understand how um, egalitarians and complementarians read the same passage, take it seriously, but arrive at different conclusions and pretty different applications, and why that happens just with uh, many scriptures or topics. And then what I want to do is end by talking about the common ground, that regardless of whether you're egalitarian or complementarian or what your particular vision for marriage is, every Christian can unify around certain priorities that God has given us for marriage. So I'm going to, Greg, I think I have on the PowerPoint Ephesians 5 starting at verse 15, but I'm actually going to jump right in to verse 21. I'm just going to jump down to 21 and read Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. So the Spirit, through Paul, writes to the church in Ephesus these words. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holiness, but sorry, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So from this passage and the other direct passages on marriage and allusions to husbands and wives in the New Testament, there are sort of, broadly speaking, two visions for Christian marriage. The first is complementarian, which is that the roles within marriage are assigned and God-given based on gender. So across all time and all circumstances, to have a Christian marriage means the man, and, and we'll talk about this, how it comes out of this passage, the man is the head of the household, he's the head of the marriage. So there's spiritual equality in Christ between uh, men and women. But within marriage, there is a legitimate hierarchy where men are to take the lead and wives are to respond with joyful submission to that. The second view is the egalitarian view, which says there may be roles in marriage, but those aren't necessarily assigned based on gender. That, they're, that the spiritual status of being equal in Christ, co-heirs with the inheritance that is in Christ Jesus, plays out into a radical equality that allows uh, husbands and wives to work together to mutually submit to one another, And yes, to take up roles within marriage, but those roles aren't necessarily directly tethered to gender. Uh, They would likely be um, connected to competency, spiritual maturity, aptitude, giftedness. Now it's really important to spend time here understanding these views. For some people, maybe you 
heard a message once about this and you're like, I get it, I've made my decision, I wanna move on, but it's actually really, really important that we spend time here, regardless of where we land, because scripture has direct counsel and commands for marriages. And so we have to pay attention to those. We don't wanna be dismissive of them. We should study those passages and seek that counsel and grapple with those commands and how to best apply them if we wanna have biblical marriages which faithfully reflect God's intention and through which God can pour his blessing on our lives. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And those designs are, include our marriage. And number two, good theology can promote and sustain good marriages. And bad theology can promote and sustain destructive marriages. And so it's really important to get some of these things right and be clear on them and what they mean and what they might not mean. Because as we've talked about in this series, the ability for someone to take certain texts, even from just this passage, emphasize some, de-emphasize or ignore the others, can be a tremendous and has been a recipe for all kinds of abuse within marital relationships. So it's really important that we practice good theological movement through the text so that regardless of where we land, we can have a mature, Christ-like, life-giving expression of that view. Okay, part one, how do complementarians read and apply Ephesians 5, 21 to 33? I've given you space in between some of the segmented parts of the passage. You want, if you're taking quick little bullet notes, just leave room for the egalitarian position to squeeze that in there because I'll be going through every, all the complementary view fir- first and then going through the passage again. I'll be moving through this somewhat quickly just for the sake of time, but also to, to, ex- to sh- kind of show how there is a momentum to the text that each view says, yeah, the text builds on itself. It makes sense. So the complementary position, again, Men and women are equal in Christ, but there's a legitimate hierarchy in marriage. The male is designed to be uh, the lead or the head of the household, and his responsibility is to love his wife. The wife's responsibility is to respect and be submissive towards the husband. So, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Complementarians are going to say, yep, this is a general Christian virtue, but what we see in the verses that follow is the fact that this virtue is supposed to take a particular shape in marriage. So while that verse 21 applies to all Christians, within marriage, it's supposed to take on a particular shape. And that shape is, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And that is a specific requirement that the text is laying out for Christian women. And then verse 23, and the, the reason is given for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. And so this is where this idea of headship comes from that in the same way that Christ is the leader or the authority over his church, um, men and husbands uh, have the responsibility and the calling to be a head over, yes, their families, but also their wives. And the word headship comes from the Greek word kephale, which does mean authority. And the emphasis here is that God has given us a structure within marriage, which it's patriarchal, it's uh, male, males in all circumstances are to take the lead for, uh, in all marriage contexts. And that men and women are spiritually equal, but because of this God-given calling, they are called to different roles within the marriage based on their gender. 
And then in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And so a complementarian is going to read that and say, Jesus is the head of the church, and that's to be reflected in the fact that the husbands are the head of their wives. And in the same way that the church seeks to submit to Jesus' lordship and uh, live faithfully before him, that should be the fundamental posture of a Christian wife. Now, complementarians will say that submission in everything is obviously, when you look at attendant text, presuming you are being led into godly, life-giving practices. It's not if you, the husband were to call you to do something that violates your Christian cons- conscience or is clearly wrong or is abusive, that you are not to submit to that. So they will concede that because of other factors. But to the extent that your husband is leading you in a way that is godly and that is framed by the scriptures, you should be in submission to that. This expression of submission is a fundamental uh, character of, uh, a complementarian would say, of all Christian wives' uh, responsibilities towards their husband out of reverence for Jesus. Then in verse 25, so husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her to make her holy, to cleanse her, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish, right? Love your wives this is the passage the complementarians will say, this is why it's not tenable for someone to say, well, I'm a complementarian, man's the head of the household, you, you do what I say because I'm in charge. They would say, no, that's impossible because the spirit through Paul is saying, husbands, you don't get to just treat your wives however you wish. You don't have kind of capital A authority to just treat her like property. You are to love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. You have to take Christ as your model, not the Roman model of the general, the commander-in-chief at the top of the power power pyramid saying, when I say jump, you ask how high. No, it's Jesus who leads through serving. And so husbands are are to love their wives through reflecting on the example of Jesus. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself, loves his wife, loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and care for it, cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we're members of his body. So complementarians will say, again, this authority is not to be abusive. There is this turn in the text where there's a very practical application of the principle of love your neighbor as yourself or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat your wives as if they, as if uh, how you would want to be treated. If you love your wife like you love your own body, you wouldn't abuse your own body. You love and you feed it and you take care of it. So again, the authority that you have is authority over your wife, but you have to steward that in a way that gets expressed through love and care for your spouse. That's the authority that you have. Then the quote from Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church Complementarians will say there is a oneness being emphasized here, right? Unity, the, the husband and wife become one flesh, but within marriage, there are distinct roles and responsibilities. So while the church is now united with Christ, and that's Paul's language that comes through the scriptures again and again, you are all in Christ. There's a oneness and a unity, but that doesn't make the church and 
uh, you know, me equal to Jesus or the church equal to Jesus. Jesus still has authority. There can still be oneness while there is a, a hierarchical structure. And then verse 33, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And so complementarians will say, loving your wife is the distinctive and normative expression of the husband's role in all marriages, and respecting your husband is the distinctive and normative expression of the wife's role in all marriage. So complementarians tend to lean on that language of husbands love wives, wives respect husbands, or the Greek word there is literally phobia, which means fear, but the context grammatically and linguistically uh, tied in with some other passages is very clearly to have the sense of reverence or awe, to have this in the same way that we fear Christ, but in the sense of we submit to Christ out of reverence and awe um, for who he is and what he has done for us. And so here, complementarians will tend to lean and to say, yeah, while, you know, obviously marriage needs love and respect, it's really important for husbands to see their primary responsibility to love, and we're kind of getting a spiritual insight into the needs of each gender, um, and women need to return maybe respect more than they need to focus on simply loving their husbands. So that's how a complementarian is going to read this passage, take it seriously, move through it, the momentum of the text makes sense, and I tried to, even though that's not my view personally, I tried to steel man that view. I tried to present the best way of articulating that from a complementarian perspective to head off any suspicion that like, oh, is this really about keeping women down or um, baptizing a structure that allows you to abuse and demean people? A strong biblical complementarian is going to say, there's no way within a complementarian position that you have been authorized to abuse or demean your spouse because the text holds you, holds husbands and those with greater authority to greater account and greater responsibility to love their wives and then to interact with their children and then household servants or slaves in a way that essentially glorifies God and is for their benefit. Part two, how do egalitarians who emphasize equality between husband and wife and that, and that don't necessarily want to commit to saying, well, in every marriage across all cultures the, that there's that hierarchy in place, that they would ultimately say that that's an illegitimate hierarchy when we just kind of apply it to all Christians and all marriages and all contexts. How do they read this same passage? Um, just as a, f uh, as a framing thing here, uh, so that you can kind of see, kind of take off one set of glasses and put on another, egalitarians are actually going to agree with complementarians how they view and understand this text to a really, really high degree. You're not going to go down this list and be like, no, we totally are on different pages about verse 21 and verse 23 and verse 27. There's going to be a huge amount of overlap. And that might be surprising to some people. Where the difference is, is an egalitarian is going to place greater emphasis on what I would call attendant cultural factors. Uh, some factors within scripture itself of other books, but also there are really big cultural gaps between the first century and ours, which changes and challenges whether or not we would just import what scripture says to do here right into 2019, right? In the same way that we pause and maybe without even much homework, 
we would take a scripture like greet each other with a holy kiss. I didn't see anybody do that this morning when I said say good morning. No one greeted each other with a holy kiss. Now it's a command of scripture. But we have sort of picked up somewhere that that was appropriate for that context, but to simply move it into right now, there are cultural factors at play that we just don't do it. We move underneath it to a greater principle of being a welcoming, hospitable place to greet one another, but the holy kiss part can be modified. And egalitarians will sort of do the same kind of movement through this text. Egalitarians are going to go through this text and say, this text says what it says and it means what it means. The question is, given what we know about the historical context, that text is, was God's best for that context? But if we're now in a different cultural context where we could move beyond um, God's best simply for that context to maybe pursue God's ideal, should we do that? So let me see, let me show you how that plays out. First century household codes were um, instantiated in first century culture. There were instructions to uh, women, children, and slaves, all seen as second class citizens, seen as subhuman to a certain extent, or at least males being not just dominant or in authority, but superior. These verses use that pattern of the household code and kind of undermine them at every turn. But we have to take into account the context that there's clearly an interaction with first century household cold codes being done here. Within those household, co household, ha household codes, women um, experienced a tremendous amount of subjugation and abuse, at least within a, a Roman context, but sometimes also within uh, Jewish contexts. And that God's ideal will change our application of the text to today. If we ask ourselves, what is God's ideal for the husband and wife relationship, which egalitarians are going to ground in Genesis 1 and 2, co-image bearers, distinct, uniquely gifted by God, but both given the commission, and there doesn't seem to be a hierarchy introduced in those early chapters of Genesis. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Egalitarians will say this is the framing passage of everything that follows. Everything that follows are examples and emphases of something that every Christian should do with each other, but importantly, every spouse should do towards the other spouse, irrespective of gender. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The underlying ethic is one of love, not dominance or power or trying to figure out who has authority in order to be in charge over the other person. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And egalitarians are going to say, yep, the first example of mutual submission that is being emphasized and is uh, being required for all Christians is wives submitting to their husbands. Which again, in a first century context, no woman would have heard that and thought, oh, that's scandalous. That was just the status quo. They would have been like, yep, I've heard this my whole life. Where it begins to change is what they then hear in verse 23. Because the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. So my husband is not in a place of headship over me in order to exert domination or control, but in some ways he is meant to be my savior, not in a spiritual sense, but he's supposed to make my life better. He's supposed to liberate me, move me into a place of, you know, salvation has this connotation in Hebrew of being moved from a confined space to a space of openness. 
And that's the kind of the momentum that you see, that egalitarians see building in this text. And so egalitarians will say, uh, I mean, some, maybe not all, but certainly as an egalitarian, I have no problem with the language of headship, um, except that it can only be understood as the responsibility to take the initiative to lay down your life for your spouse. So once it kind of becomes a turn towards, yeah, it's kind of that, but it's also like I'm, I'm the boss, like I'm in charge. It's like, no, the only thing that this text is pointing to is the fact that husbands are head, and maybe the way to think about that is as dynamic allegory, and this is from uh, Ben Witherington III, who's a biblical scholar, egalitarian, is not so much the head in terms of like the top of the body or top of the pyramid, but the head is like the tip of the spear. That husbands do have a responsibility to lead and take the initiative in laying down their lives and in submitting to their spouse. So if you want to use the language of headship, I'm totally fine with that as an egalitarian. It's just um, the equality that gets emphasized in verses 28 and 31 undermines this idea that headship is, at the end of the day, all really about authority and the ability to kind of make the final decision in these scenarios or whatever. It's about the call to lay down your life. So as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Same qualifiers here for egalitarians. It doesn't mean everything. You know, you don't violate your Christian conscience. You um, make sure that you are... Um, following your husband in a way that is wise and fruitful. Um, so the in everything, neither of you takes that literally, again, to mean if your husband says jump, you ask how high. It's an emphasis. But other biblical texts that deal with household codes give us a clue that this kind of uh, challenge is addressed to a specific cultural situation. And that is that the fear, and you, and you hear this in the writings of first century critics of Christianity, the fear that Christianity needs to be persecuted and snuffed out and suppressed because it's fundamentally revolutionary and it is subversive to the natural order of things, to the right order of things, which in that context was the Roman order of things. And generally speaking, any movement in the ancient world that threatened the social order was viewed by Rome as suspicious at best, but dangerous at worst. So all of a sudden, when you have a bunch of people, but maybe predominantly women in the decades that follow the resurrection, becoming Christians because of the liberation of freedom that they, are, they gain in Christ and the spiritual dignity and equal standing that they have with men, um, there might have been a temptation to think, hey, we can just kind of blow up the whole system and we're gonna start a revolution and Titus 2, which is another passage that talks about how wives ought to submit, it gives the reason why wives should do that. So that no one will malign or literally blaspheme the word of God. And so egalitarians would say wives are absolutely being called to submit to their husbands. Because in that context, to not do that and to make a movement into an egalitarian structure would have been seen as... Um, a threat, and it would have invited more persecution, and it would have invited more condescension, because in that culture, both in the Jewish and in the Gentile context, there wasn't really an imagination for how marriage could look different other than the man's the head of the household. And that means 
headship and power and domination and authority because he is of a different stature ontologically. He is a higher grade of human being. And so clearly the relationship to Christian wives and their husbands was a source of scandal to non-Christians who heard that, wait, in Christ now male and female have equal standing? How, how in the world does that even work? Slave and free are equal in Jesus? This command has to be read and understood, at least in part, at forestalling persecution. And again, you have to think about it from the woman's point of view. If the Spirit through Paul says, hey, you're equal now, co-lead together, go for it, there is no, there's no template for them in terms of what that would even look like. They have no imagination for that. Most of them probably wouldn't have wanted it because uh, I don't, uh, what? So you're working within a system and structure that's a given culturally, but you're still undermining it by saying, yes, there's still headship, yes, there's a authority here, and this is God's best for this situation, but maybe it's not God's ideal. But for right now, this is what's best for the witness of the church and for the advance of the gospel. Husbands, love your wives, right? Just as Christ loved the church, egalitarians will emphasize, like complementarians will too. The word love here in the Greek is agape. It's the highest, most dedicated, most sincere form of love. It means to cherish something, to prize it, to selflessly care for it, to be devoted to it out of high regard. And to date, that I know of, there is no exhortation, encouragement, challenge for husbands to love their wives in the first century from any non-Christian literature. So this is revolutionary. It means that the gospel compels those who have inherited through their culture the most power to see their power not as an opportunity to lord it over others or to exploit others, but within marriage to be a proactive agent of divine love, agape love. Now, if you think about it, if a husband takes that seriously, how long are you going to sustain a structure where you are asking women to submit to, them, submit to their husbands in everything? So egalitarians see here a kind of a seed that is working with what is to over time cultivate something that could be. Where a husband is called to love his wife this way and to treat her out of who the gospel says she is, it's gonna be difficult to sustain this hierarchy that's simply based on gender as he moves into loving her the way Christ loves the church. At least that, that's a thesis. Verses 28 to following, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as Christ love, or um, ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And again, egalitarians are gonna agree with complementarians here. This is a spin on love your neighbors yourself. But again, they're just gonna pause there and say, but keep thinking about though. In everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat your wives as, this, as if they were yourself. Love them and treat them in bodily expression in your everyday life as if you would want to be treated, as if you were treating yourself. How long would, you, would it take as you live into that 
before it's going to sort of naturally lead to a view where mutuality in marriage becomes a really defining value. Verses 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, the quote from Genesis, and then Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about the Christ and the church. And the Galatarians will say, the point of this verse is not to emphasize that there's Christ in the church. It's actually the emphasis of this text is on the oneness, is on the unity. That though these things are distinct, they are now, there's a fundamental oneness. And that oneness gets played out, how? Through Jesus every day, dropping you a little text saying, you do all of this today? Jesus coercing you into submission? Is that your experience of following Jesus? Or is it, as you reflect and think about and meditate on his example, he does lead us, of course, but it's always from this place of invitation and love and, in a sense, spiritual wooing. It's almost never heavy-handed because that's not the way that a shepherd leads sheep. And so what's being stressed here is that within marriage, Christians are called to cultivate a deep mutuality and equality, oneness together, husband and wife, one flesh. If you're one flesh, if you're together, how, egalitarians will use that metaphor and kind of go in the direction of how could one part of who you are be higher than the other? I mean, complementarians will say head and the rest of the body, but egalitarians will look at it and say, but if you're one though, if you're unified, it stops making sense to think about your body in terms of like parts. So what's being stressed here is unity. And then 33, you must love your wife. Husbands must uh, love your wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. And egalitarians are gonna say, totally agree that love and respect are critical ingredients for all marriages. They're just probably gonna say, again, and and again, if couples want to see it, like love is the kind of a one-way street or respect is the other one-way street, that's fine. But really what's being emphasized here is probably what men needed emphasized for them in their context, where they were told their whole lives, you don't need to love your wives, they're just property, you just do with them as you will. And that women in Ephesus, because we see this come up in letters to Timothy, and then we know this about historical context, that there's a big uh, temple cult, Artemis, Diana, where there were some segments of uh, Ephesian culture that really had not just a high view of women, but um, where women were celebrated in sort of a they're superior to men because they can be a unique conduit to this uh, god Artemis. And so that might have tempted some uh, early Christian converts. And I think this is part of what plays into the Timothy, I don't permit a woman to teach with authority over a man because the word for authority there is a slightly different word than is normally used for authority. It's a, that there's this tension of as people come to Christ from that background, and maybe our cultural equivalent would be like, oh yeah, I just became a Christian. This is awesome. My whole life, girls rule, boys drool. Yeah, women in charge, I'm gonna do this. And Paul's like, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. There's an equality in Christ. So there's a challenge to both genders who enter into a marriage or enter into church life thinking, well, because of this immutable trait, that puts me at a higher ground automatically, obviously superior because of this. And Paul says, no, that's not an accurate working out of the gospel. So the framing pillars in this passage are husbands and wives are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands. 
You don't have to get locked into a mechanical understanding of that. Love and respect each other. Submit to one another, care for one another, and allow your own giftings and passions and who you are. You're a team. Glorify God together, but don't feel like you have to adhere to some kind of hierarchy. The, the grand hierarchy that you need to be aware of is the head of your marriage is Christ, and that you are serving him together, and you are leading your family forward. Lauren has been challenging me to become a better speaker. And this was an idea that I had. I don't use props very much. My props are kind of lame, but here's the prop. And I want to explain to you why egalitarians and complementarians can arrive at, in some ways, different conclusions, but the particularities even though they both love Jesus, they're taking the text seriously and they're trying to apply it faithfully. What a complementarian will do, and again, I'm, I'm steel manning this. I, I respect this a lot. Here's scripture. Big box is scripture. Little box is context. All the contextual factors, mostly, let's say, cultural. Things that were going on in the first century, worldviews at that time, what's happening at Ephesus. And this is what the scripture clearly says, and probably other scriptures that are directly uh, connected to that. What complementarians will do is they're going to foreground scripture, and they're going to say, this is clearly the thing that we need to be paying attention to, and with context, they're going to put it in the background, and depending on how uh, soft or hard of a complementarian one is, this is going to be placed really far back. It'll still be there, useful information, but when it comes to really boiling down what does the text mean and how do we apply it, this is what has to be in the foreground. And there's certainly, I think you could see a value of wanting to uphold the authority of Scripture. And they're going to say, so the text is direct and clear. Christian marriages are designed to be male-led and female-supported. Male headship is to be exercised through loving care and service, but that's n- leadership in the home is not a responsibility to be shared. Wives are to willingly submit to their husband's leadership, and the cultural context of Ephesians, while it might be helpful to know, know and nuance it slightly, it doesn't actually change how we're going to read or apply this text. Now, what egalitarians will do is they will bring the context into the foreground as well. And they're going to say, we need to look at both of these things. Now, the context is never going to be bigger than Scripture. It's never going to override it. But to make sure that we're being faithful to a passage that has a high, um, historically, probability of being misread and misapplied in abusive ways, let's really make sure we're dealing with all the factors in play, and let's not just be too quick to dismiss or to minimize cultural factors. So they're going to say, the text is clear. Marriages in the early Christian church were explicitly directed to be male-led and female-supported. And male headship was to be exercised through loving care and support, and wives were instructed to willingly submit to their husband's leadership. However, when we take into account attending cultural factors, like the household codes, first century views of women, need to avoid persecution, and broader scriptural themes of freedom in Christ and what kind of the trajectory of redemption is for all who find themselves in Christ, we can absolutely 
take this text seriously and we should read it as God's best for that particular situation, but not necessarily God's ideal. In a few more verses, Paul's going to give instructions to masters and slave owners. Now, slavery looks a little bit different, but just hold on to the basic idea for a second. There's going to be instructions to masters and slaves. Is that revealing that God has designed across cultures and all times and contexts for there to be masters and slaves? Or was that dealing with a particular situation? Saying, how does the gospel apply right now to that situation? But if we were to find ourselves in a context where we had moved beyond an economy that was a dependent upon literally owning another human being, even if it was only for a bounded set of time or under certain circumstances, would we say, that's awesome. We need to understand and apply that text on masters and slaves differently because there's such a gap. Or would we think, no, we need to kind of retain masters and slaves because the Bible calls us to that. No, most of us, again, understand that that was a reality they were dealing with, but now that we have different realities, we can still learn from the text on masters and slaves, but we're not going to apply it in a direct way. Not because we're not taking scripture seriously, but because we're also foregrounding other cultural factors. So in your handout, you can kind of see there's these slight values in terms of how you come into and move through the text between the two views that challenge how you see it. Now, there are definitely, definitely people, and I am myself one, who get concerned because what I see is, as an egalitarian is I could see this happen. We need to foreground the context. But actually, there can be a movement beyond that where the context becomes the big box and scripture gets backgrounded. Oh, there's such a gap. There's such a gap between the cultural context and the scripture. You can't really trust anything that scripture says or it says what it says, but it's all of it applied only to then, nothing into now because it's all contextual. So we can kind of just um, completely kind of revamp and reinterpret scripture in the light of our own context. This is the dominating factor. And that is a real threat. That's called progressive or liberal theology. But what some people mistake is the movement to make sure we're understanding the cultural context in alignment with scripture, that will lead to progressive theology. That won't lead to progressive theology. What leads to progressive or liberal or unbiblical theology is when you just begin to slowly minimize the authority of the word of God. That's what will lead to progressive theology. And egalitarianism is not that movement. It seeks to take the text seriously within its context, and then it arrives at different conclusions. Everyone go, ooh, that was such a good illustration. <laughs> so good, so creative. <laughs> so here's the common ground. Two minutes. The common ground, again, and I said this a few weeks ago, I think a healthy, God-fearing marriage where Partners come together and say, yeah, we, we align with the complementarian view of marriage. That's what we want for our marriage. And they seek to live out that vision is going to look very similar to a couple who says, we have, we're egalitarians. Because there's, it's going to be defined by Christ-like leadership, mutual submission, giving each other, um, seeing each other as a conduit through which you serve and bless the other person. Maybe some of the structure is going to look different, but really at its heart, 
it's going to look very, very similar. So I'm okay with people wrestling with the text and coming out on either side as long as they allow this text to frame and define what things like headship and submission and love means. And where common ground is found that everybody should be able to agree on is that to quote Timothy Keller, marriage has the power to set the course of your life as a whole. If your marriage is strong, even if all the circumstances around you are filled with trouble and weakness, it's not going to matter because you will be able to move out into the world in strength. And so what's going to be emphasized here across all Christian views is that marriage is a sacred covenant of one flesh unity where a husband and wife learn to be naked and not afraid together. Not just naked physically, obviously, but spiritually, relationally, emotionally, before God. And it's designed to be experienced as a unique conduit of God's grace and love and care and support between partners. There should be an experience of both partners where in a way that's particularly sweet, and I'm not saying that this makes marriage easy, it's obviously not, but a Christian marriage, there will be a desire to cultivate a culture within your marriage where you are experiencing a special kind of (laughs) dispensation of God's grace and mercy through your spouse. And you as a spouse are seeking to be that to your partner because this is a sacred covenant that you've made with no other person. And that, to use a phrase from my pastor friend, Leanne Friesen in Hamilton, marriage is meant to preach God's goodness and glory into the world. Non-Christians don't have to look at our marriages and see perfection. They're not going to. They can look to our marriages and see a desire to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And even though that might get expressed a little bit differently between the two views, our non-Christian friends who are close and can see our marriages up close should be at least, they should have their cages rattled a little bit in the sense of like, that is the way they are seeking to care and love and support and grow in that marriage I do not think of this, my marriage like that. Or I've avoided marriage for much of my life, but if marriage, if I could find a marriage like that, I might be kind of tempted to go into it. Our marriages are meant to preach God's goodness and glory into the world, and that's why, for me, you can't have a Christian marriage without being a Christian. It's not just about abstracting values and principles. You have to be personally yielded to Jesus. And as you do that, And as you're filled with God's love and joy, that allows you to joyfully submit to your spouse and to seek to honor God and bring him glory through your marriage. Let's pray. God, as we continue to wrestle through this text and in the coming weeks think through parenting relationships and then other relationships as it relates to employment and vocation, God, give us wisdom. Continue to pour into us. Continue to help us to understand and to take your text seriously to yield to it, to recognize its authority, but help us to correctly handle it and to handle it carefully so that our applications are honoring to you and are a source of blessing to our marriages and our families and our church and our community in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.